This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, January 20th. I'm Matt Hoish. In today's headlines, mask up for now. County approves mining near Norwood. Listening Club looks at Kid A and a mountain weather forecast. Masks will remain in San Miguel County for the time being. This week, public health extended the local mask mandate through the end of February as San Miguel continues to make its way through an Omicron surge. But, according to Lindsay Mills, public information consultant for the county, there may be a light at the end of the tunnel. She notes public health officials are looking at data from South Africa and the UK. We're starting to see disease incidents drop significantly. Cases are decreasing at almost a ra- a, a ra- as rapid a rate as they increased. So the hope, of course, is that that will start occurring in the United States. Mills spoke on KOTO on Thursday. If the U.S. and San Miguel County follow those trends, Mills says public health could repeal the mandate early. Seeing these trends in this significant decline in incidents brings a lot of hope to the fact that in the next two weeks, we could have a very, very low case rate at that point. So I do think that this is a, a quickly moving period of transmission that will increase quickly, resulting in a continuance of this current mandate, but then decrease potentially very quickly as well, which could lift restrictions pretty quickly as well. With that hope on the horizon, Mills says the added protection layer of a mask is still the right move. We're seeing that consistent and effective mask use, especially when using high-end masks like medical masks or N95 masks, is limiting spread in high transmissibility places. So, you know, schools, I think, are the one of the biggest heavy-hitting points that we keep talking about. Mills acknowledges mask compliance isn't 100% across the county, but she notes they're still seeing high compliance in the spots that matter most. The places where we really, really need, you know, high and attentive mask use, schools, grocery stores, critical care centers, um, workplace as well. These are the places where people can't necessarily assess risk because they have to go to school. They have to go to the grocery store. These are essential services, and it's important that we respect everybody around us in those circumstances. In other places, like bars or restaurants, she adds, it's about personal risk assessment. If you choose to go out to dinner, that's a risk assessment, knowing that people around you have to take their mask off to eat their food, drink, have a merry time. Um, so I, I think that that's, that's the key piece that keeps coming up, of course, is that there's low compliance when you go out to dinner, but that's a risk that some people are willing to take at this point. Fully vaccinated, boosted individuals are very highly protected from severe disease from COVID. So that's that's something that each individual is charged with focusing on at this point. Public health is also shifting how it looks at data to determine orders and regulations. Since the beginning of the pandemic, public health officials have turned to the incident and positivity rates to drive local measures. Mills stresses public health is still looking at that data, but she adds an increase in at-home COVID testing shifts what those metrics mean. At-home testing isn't always reported. Um, More often than not, we're seeing that someone testing positive is then jumping online, figuring out what their quarantine period is, informing their close contacts, and making sure that everybody's aware of what's going on. Um, And then the 
afterthought, of course, is to send an email to public health. Um, so we're, we're grateful that everybody's so informed, but this, the a limitation of incidents and positivity is that we don't know the entire picture of those two metrics anymore because people are testing at home and we're not capturing all of that data. So when making the decision to keep or repeal the mandate, Mills notes public health is looking at the quote, big picture. We're looking at the entire state of Colorado, what's happening throughout the state, how is hospital capacity, how is hospital staffing. Public health plans to reassess the county mask mandate at a meeting on Wednesday, February 2nd. The San Miguel County Board of Commissioners has given the okay for a mining special use permit for a 25-acre parcel on the west end of the county. The spot is about two miles northeast of Norwood. The proposal is a mining special use permit to first extract sand and rock anti-process gravel and construction materials on site. That's County Senior Planner John Hubner discussing the mining with the BOCC at their meeting this week. The new site will be owned by Skeleton Inc. and leased to United Companies and serve as an expansion of an adjacent mining site in Montrose County that has been active for over 30 years. The intent is to expand onto this property when mining in Montrose County property is complete. The mining company estimates mining won't start on the site for another 10 years. When it does, production on the new site, Hubner adds, would be in line with the five-year average on the current site of roughly 100,000 tons per year. They currently operate the gravel crushing operation for an average of 59 days per year, and they don't anticipate any increase to that. And currently, over the last five years, they have averaged about 30-plus trucks a day during the uh, roughly 220-day operating season. Ben Langenfeld represented the permit applicants at the meeting. He says they estimate new mining would last for about 25 years. Langenfeld stresses the new spot will be a continuation of the current mining. We're not going to have to add any new infrastructure, uh, bring in any new plants, or expand the intensity of the operations. We're just going to continue operations using the skeleton pit area as a new rock source uh, when we finish up in our current pit. Initially, the operators proposed operating the new site from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Monday through Saturday. But after members of the public voiced concern, they agreed to reduce operating hours to 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. Monday through Friday. The operators also want to do gravel crushing on the site, but Hubner explains there will be some other requirements on that front. Prior to them doing gravel crushing, there will need to be a noise analysis just to show that they can meet the um, minimum decibel requirements um, emanating from a site with gravel crushing. The nearest home, Hubner adds, is about 1,200 feet away. So it should not be an issue in them meeting that requirement required by San Miguel County. Still, members of the public voiced concern at the meeting. Marianne Gaston lives nearby. She's concerned about water use and noisy jake breaks on trucks that she's had issues with in the past. This is our time in front of the county commissioners to let you know that we're not being responded to. Peggy Smelt Day lives south of the gravel pit. I'm not exactly sure how far I live from the site, but I can tell you that I am visually impacted by the scale. I'm visually impacted by the berm. 
I can hear the crusher and I impacted by the Jake brake trucks. Smelt Day is also concerned with how the county will monitor the operation and ensure it's following proper protocols over the next several decades of operation. Still, after extensive discussion, the commissioners approved the special use permit for the mining unanimously, with several conditions around timing, operations, and land use. The county also plans to hold an annual review to ensure the operations remain compliant with the agreed conditions and neighbors' concerns are taken into account. This Monday, the Wilkinson Public Library resumes its monthly listening club. It's like a book club, but for albums. This month, Sam Burgess will lead a club on his album of choice, Kid A by Radiohead. KOTO spoke with Burgess about the album. It is an interesting album um, for anyone who's familiar with Radiohead. You know, they were pretty big in the 90s. They made a big splash with three albums, uh, Pablo Honey, The Benz, and of course, OK Computer, which was probably their, a lot of people consider their magnum opus. I consider Kid A kind of their magnum opus. After OK Computer, which it came with so many accolades, um, and they were just touring the snot out of it. Um, and after that whole run of tours for OK Computer, they just exhibited burnout. They were about to call it quits. You know, Tom York couldn't write anything um, and just kind of wanted to reset. So they, they took about uh, two years off, I think maybe about a year off. And when he came back after sort of listening to a lot of these different types of, uh, of music, mainly electronic based music, he was inspired. It's an interesting thing just because it was such a different sound from what people were used to, from what Radiohead was before. Before it was a lot of guitar-based, driven rock, alternative. A lot of the stuff that we were used to hearing in the 90s, which is kind of a, a mix of like grunge and punk rock um, and sort of 70s style classic rock and roll. And they just kind of completely did a 180 with that. And this recording is filled with a lot of electronic doodads. Um, they used Pro Tools to edit a lot of like the guitar, even the natural guitar tones. Um, most of the drums are electronic drums. Um, there's not too many or organic drums in there. Um, and they used a lot of uh, different samples and loops, uh, processed guitar sounds. So it was, it was very different. Um, and it definitely polarized their uh, fan base and critics alike too. A lot of people just thought this is not the Radiohead that they that they came to be used to. I was somewhat of a fan of Radiohead. Um, I had heard OK Computer when I was in college um, and, you know, liked it, but I was never, I never considered myself like a huge Radiohead fan. I hadn't seen him live or anything. Um, but then a friend of mine who was a huge Radiohead fan, he, he was like, dude, have you checked out the new Radiohead album and I was like I was like no I didn't even realize there was one so I didn't even know about it um he played it for me and yeah I, I actually instantly fell in love with it I think Underworld was probably the band that I first started listening to that really opened my eyes to what electronic music could do Kid A is the same way like even though it's filled with all of these modular synth you know sounds and these weird edits of organic instruments it still sounds kind of organic to me and 
mainly it's because it's still being made by humans. I mean, even though it's it's all this digital format, it's still sort of being produced and the sound is coming out of like, you know, the creative aspect of the human brain. So um, I, I guess that's why electronic music always appealed to me because it was, you know, a manipulation of the things that we have created from a scientific perspective to make these really cool different sounds. Burgess will lead the January Listening Club on Kid A by Radiohead this Monday, January 24th at the Telluride Music Company. The club runs from 6 to 7 p.m. For more information, head to telluridelibrary.org. The Ure Ice Festival is back. After a pandemic-induced cancellation in 2021, the celebration of all things cold, athletic, and vertical returns to the Ure Ice Park this weekend. In addition to gear expos and ice climbing competitions over the weekend, there will also be movie screenings Friday afternoon and evening, and a costume party Saturday night, plus a walk-up climbing wall available all weekend. The 2022 Ure Ice Festival kicks off Thursday, January 20th and runs through Sunday the 23rd. More information is available at ureicepark.com. There's music aplenty available this weekend in and around Telluride. On Friday, Brendan Schaefer's at Heritage Plaza from 12 to 4 p.m., Andy Jones is at the Peaks from 3 to 6 DJ Lena Vibes is at the Transfer Warehouse from 6 to 7. Late Night Radio with Motif is at the Sheridan Opera House from 9 to 11.30 p.m. And DJ Wombat is at the Liberty from 10 to midnight. Saturday, look for Leslie and Trevor at Heritage Plaza from noon to 4 p.m. And Aubrey Mabel at the Transfer Warehouse from 3 to 5. And Sunday, catch Jan and Mike Graves at Heritage Plaza from 12 to 4 p.m. If you missed any of that or want to learn about future live music in the area, head to koto.org and check out the new live music calendar. Colorado lawmakers have introduced more than 160 bills in the first week of their new session. KOTO Scott Franz has more on the measures that will likely spark debate. Democrats want to make it a crime to carry guns within 100 feet of polling places and ballot boxes. Sponsors say the Vote Without Fear Act would prevent intimidation during elections. Gun safety advocates have been calling for the measures because of an increase in armed protests. Meanwhile, Republicans are proposing bills they say will prevent election fraud. One would require paper ballots to have several new security features, including invisible ink, a removable receipt, and other things normally found on checks. Republicans are also proposing to force county clerks to cancel voter registrations of people who are not eligible for jury duty in their counties. But the bills are not likely to advance in a legislature still heavily controlled by Democrats. I'm Scott Franz at the State Capitol. As climate change becomes more front and center across the world, communities are looking to transition away from fossil fuels. 
This winter, KOTO is partnering with stations in the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition to report a series of stories looking at that shift. Today, we're heading north. 169 low-income essential workers in Colorado are using e-bikes paid for by the state. The Can-Do Colorado e-bike pilot program appears to be a hit with participants and a positive step in the transition away from fossil fuels. KGNU's Hannah Lee Myers reports. It seems the sound of e-bikes whizzing by is going to become increasingly familiar during commutes. Sandy Syrian, e-bike program manager at Community Cycles in Boulder, says federal data suggests e-bikes should become a more familiar means of transportation. Over 60% of every car trip is within six miles of a home and 75% uh, of every car trip is within 10 miles of somebody's home. And those short trips mean many of us are good candidates to replace fossil fuel vehicle trips with e-bike travel. A change a recent in-depth study found could cut urban residents' travel emissions by 67% if one car ride a day was replaced with an e-bike trip. The same study found if just 10% of the urban public would do the same, overall transportation emissions would fall by around 10%. Here enters the Can-Do Colorado e-bike program. After a successful mini-pilot in the fall of 2020, in spring of 2021, the Colorado Energy Office awarded grant funding to five organizations, including Boulder's Community Cycles. Each organization was charged with outfitting a portion of the 156 low-income essential workers participating with new e-bikes and all the required accessories. It's been an incredible blessing for me. 36-year-old Joshua Robinson applied for the program while experiencing homelessness. And after a few months with his e-bike, he's thrilled and has ruled out trying to buy a car altogether. There's not a lot of situations I can think of where I would need a vehicle necessarily. Like even with snowboarding, the, there's a bus that goes up there. And sometimes if I want like a little bit of extra range, I can put my bike on the bus and then ride it from there. And especially with like rates the way they are right now with cars, I don't know if you've looked at that, but like rates are crazy. I don't really see myself in the foreseeable future getting a car, or needing to get a car, really. Fellow participant Howard Trapita agrees with Robinson that the program has had a life-altering positive effect. Even though the transition to the e-bike lifestyle can take some time and dedication. The minute I get on my bike to leave work, I'm a little tired. And sometimes I think about taking that bus, but the minute I'm out there, um, I think if people just give it a shot, not two weeks, they give it three months, then they wouldn't want to do it any other way. You know, My gas money goes towards a nice bottle of wine for the weekend. Can-Do Colorado program participants have been logging their travel info on an app developed by the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Senior program manager at the Colorado Energy Office, Sarah Thorne, has been reviewing that data. And her opinion is? I would say overall, like, very successful. Thorne says the positive results of this pilot program fit well with federal and state plans to encourage the use of e-bikes as a means of travel in the future. So I think moving forward, you know, there are going to be a lot more programs available. And it's not just going to be us. It's going to be 
our neighboring states, it's going to be smaller communities, whether that's through their utility or through their local government. And that also includes, you know, infrastructure, federal dollars, all of that stuff is going to be available in the next, you know, six to nine months. And I think that's really going to change what's available to people and their ability to participate in any sort of e-bike action. President Biden's Build Back Better Act currently includes a $900 tax credit for e-bike purchases. From the state, to the bike shop, to the participants, there was agreement on another necessary factor to make e-bikes a successful part of the transition away from fossil fuels. Bicycle infrastructure. Infrastructure. Biking infrastructure. Like protected bike lanes, safe bike storage, robust trail systems, and e-bike compatible mounts on buses. All infrastructure that keeps bike users safe and comfortable on roads, trails, and when traveling in conjunction with public transit. Which is a must if e-bikes are going to win over commuters and coax them out of their cars. This story is part of a Rocky Mountain Community Radio reporting collaboration on fossil fuels. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Hanley Myers. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for scattered snow showers tonight with a low in the mid-teens. New snow accumulation of less than half an inch is possible. Friday, expect snow showers with a high around 30 degrees. One to two inches of new snow accumulation is possible. Friday night should be cloudy with a low in the mid-teens and a 50% chance of snow showers with less than half an inch of new snow possible. Saturday calls for mostly sunny skies with a high near freezing. Saturday night should be mostly clear with a low in the mid-teens. This has been the news for Thursday, January 20th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Hey, Kodo listeners. Did you know that a third of people in our community experience hunger? Lots of people experience food insecurity, and many others can't afford or don't have access to fresh and nutritious food. If you're one of those people, there are many resources that can help. You may qualify for SNAP, a program that helps boost your food budget so that you can put healthy, filling food on the table. There are also programs that can teach you to cook healthy food on a budget and provide nutritional coaching. Tri-County Health Network can help you enroll in SNAP and find other programs to help you live a healthy lifestyle. Just go to tchnetwork.org to get connected. Together, we can combat hunger in our community. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you'd like to comment, please contact a staff person here at KOTO. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.